Like I mentioned before, as we continue on our series of Crossbound, what we're doing is we're plowing through the Gospel of Mark, not looking at every single thing that happens in Mark, but following Jesus on this fast-paced, action-packed Gospel all the way as he goes to the cross and ultimately, of course, rises from the empty grave. Um, and all along the way, as he invites us to come along with him as his disciples, that doesn't mean living a life that's a cakewalk. His grace is free, yes, but following him will cost you everything. Because all along the way, what he's doing is he is constantly challenging ourselves, challenging our values, our priorities, the things we hold most dear, our attitude, uh, a call to follow him is necessary to challenge us because it means following him means getting away from ourselves. A call for him means a call away from ourselves. And today, the thing that he challenges us on is this notion of family. And family is something that our culture especially holds uh, near and dear. And family can be one of the greatest gifts ever. And it can be often the most dysfunctional thing in the world. And often, at the same time, I think you know what I mean. Family can be complicated in a nutshell. And what complicates it further is our sin. Broken homes through divorces, through absentee fathers, through single moms who are trying to pick up the pieces and play the role of both parents and have a a hopeless job in doing so, but but God bless them, they're, they're doing their best, you know. Uh, It's made complicated by a teenage rebellion, adolescence, immaturity, and on and on and on we could go. And and over the last uh, 50 years, I would say, sociologists would say about the last five decades, there has been an explosion in the family or the emphasis on the family because people are realizing now more than ever the importance of family and the importance that has of rearing up a child and their development and setting them up for success. And so, so many things today are done in the name of family. The holidays aren't about the holidays anymore. The holidays are about the family and everything is done for family and we're doing this for my family. And how many times have you heard someone say, I'm doing this for the family? And I think the question we get to wrestle with today is, are we emphasizing family a little too much at times? And in a culture, especially a suburban culture that we primarily have in this area and in our country today, saying something like maybe too much of family is is too much, um, that's kind of tantamount to heresy. That's kind of tantamount to blasphemy. What kind of a pastor am I? What kind of a church is this? I thought this was supposed to be a family church that I would suggest that maybe we can emphasize family too much. If you think that's offensive, just wait till you dive into Jesus' words and see what he has to challenge us with today. Because Jesus is going to poke at this idea of family especially in our lives today. And you've already seen that as he pokes you, as he comes after you maybe a little bit, that the tendency is to just throw up some defensive walls, to tune it out, to think this is for someone else, not me, I don't have this problem. Don't do that. But instead, hear with an open mind and allow him to probe deep into your lives because maybe what he's showing you is a blind spot that you didn't even know was there. Maybe he's poking at you, and he's irritating you, not just to be irritating. Jesus never does that. What is he doing? He loves you. And because he loves you, he sometimes has to show you something that's maybe there, you didn't know it, but he wants to help you. He wants to heal you. He wants to rescue you. 
And that's especially what you see in this story as we dive into what he says about family. Let's just dive right in again. Uh, Verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's a, a massive crowd, okay? When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now, to understand this uh, scene, this context that Mark gives to us, you've got to back up and see what in the world was happening. Why is there a crowd here uh, that's gathering? Where is Jesus? What's been going on? So in the, in the first three chapters leading up to this point, ever since Jesus got onto this scene, what has he been doing? Casting out demons, healing a whole bunch of people. Actually, right before this, he even just uh, healed a man paralyzed. But all the while, while he's doing that, he is also upsetting the religious status quo, challenging the authority of the religious leaders by giving a new authority, a new teaching that doesn't go in line with theirs, and they're pretty ticked off. And everywhere he goes, he seems to be doing this. He's in the region of around northern Galilee at this point, and people aren't quite sure what to make of him. But they know he's a pretty exciting guy. He's kind of got this celebrity status. What's he going to do next? Is there going to be another demon? Is there going to be another healing? Is he going to have another showdown with some teachers of the law, right? They don't know what's going on. They know he's a pretty exciting guy. And so he gets to a spot, and guess what? A crowd gathers. Another crowd gathers around. It's a big crowd, but he's also apparently in close proximity to his home, where Mary, his mom, and his brothers seemingly are, and they hear about this. Jesus is at it again, and so we're told they went to take charge of him. Now, this is not just kind of a courtesy thing. Hey, Jesus, uh, Mary wants you home for supper. Dinner's on. Let's get home. No, the Greek here says uh, literally they wanted to seize him. They were not on his side, in other words. They were opposed to him. Let that sink in. Jesus' own family was opposed to what he was doing. If you looked at John chapter 7, verse 5, you would see at this point in time that Jesus' own brothers, later on they would believe, but at this point, they weren't believers. You know, they, they weren't believing Jesus. Uh, what, what they saw was essentially their brother that they grew up with, who's now 30 years old, and he goes out, he gets baptized, now he makes these claims that he's the son of God, and somehow he's healing, somehow he's doing these miracles, somehow he's casting out demons, and he's also throwing shade and and getting in fights, it seems, with the religious leaders, scrapping at them with these verbal debates about what's truth, what's not, and even Mary, his own mother, who was clued in about Jesus, Of course, from the angel, she knows who he is. Even she is apparently a bit taken aback by this. And in a shame-honor culture in society, what they're thinking is probably something along the lines of, Jesus, enough's enough. Like, we got to stop this. Our name is getting dragged into this. And, and people are, are getting to notice. And there's whispers uh, of people plotting to kill you and get rid of you. It might get worse for you. It might get worse for us. Are you out of your mind? When are you going to stop? The conclusion, probably especially from Jesus' own brothers, Jesus, how do you explain all this stuff that he's doing? He's insane. He's loony. He's lost his mind. That was their explanation for what Jesus was doing. The the scribes, the teachers of the law, they had their own explanation for what Jesus is doing. He's demon-possessed. And 
to take just a, a momentary break, I want to emphasize the family today, and so there's a, there's a whole uh, sandwich in this teaching, there's a whole middle part in this teaching about the scribe's reaction to Jesus, about how he's possessed by Beelzebub, and I was just going to skip over that whole thing, except there's a problem with that because then Jesus starts talking about the sin of against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, and it's been my experience that when you just, you know, say something about that and then don't mention it, especially people who are maybe younger to the faith or or never have seen that, uh, they say, wait, we're not going to talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? What is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Do I need to be concerned about this unforgivable sin? So give me 60 to 120 seconds to just explain that middle part briefly. We're not going to go into depth, but then we'll come back to the idea of family. Jesus' family thought he was insane. The scribes said, no, how do you explain everything that's going on? He's demon-possessed. Satan has a hold of him. And Jesus does not just let this stand. Jesus looks at them and says, oh, we got to talk about this. Do you realize how ridiculous of an explanation that is? That I am possessed by Beelzebub, by Satan. So you're saying that I am going to do my nefarious work by casting out my own army, by shooting myself in the foot? Who goes on the offensive by doing some friendly fire? That makes absolutely no sense, guys. No, actually, what I'm doing is I'm plundering the strong man's house. That is, I am rescuing those that Satan has a clutch on and a hold on. And in order to do that, you don't just walk in. What do you have to do? You got to tie up the strong man. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm going on the offensive against Satan himself, the strong man. I am binding him up. I am saving people. But the fact that you are so blinded by your pride, unwilling to see the works before your eyes, plain as day, for what they are because you don't want to think you're wrong and you credit the good works I'm doing not to God but to Satan and say these good things are evil that's unforgivable because what that is and is, is an expression of the hardness of your heart and the unbelief that you have that you will not listen to a word that I have to say and how can God forgive that in its context, that's what the unforgivable sin is. And so when someone comes and says, I don't know, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? You know what my response is? The very fact that you're burdened or anxious or wondering about that is evidence that you haven't. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit inside you, living and working an attitude of repentance and faith. In general, the sin against, the, against the, the Holy Spirit is a perpetual state of unbelief that refuses God, that refuses Jesus, that refuses his forgiveness, and doesn't even want his forgiveness. And how can there be forgiveness if someone keeps swatting it away and refuses it? Now, back to the thing about family. That's how he responded to his opponents, <clears throat> the, the scribes. How would he respond to his family who's opposed to him? You know, they, they come to where Jesus is. There's such a massive crowd, they, they can't get in. So they uh, tap someone on the shoulder. Can you go share a message to Jesus? And here's how he would respond. A crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. And you need to see just how provocative of a statement that was in that day. Like, put yourself in Jesus' shoes or in kind of a similar scenario, and your mom, your mom, not just your brothers, your mom comes and is like, hey, she's outside, she needs to talk to you. My guess is, at the very least, even if you knew she was in the wrong, you would go, stop what you're doing, and go talk to her. Why? Because she's your mama. You know I mean, when, when, when mom and dad, uh, they tell you to do something, okay, fine, I will go out because, because they're family. You'd think that if anybody would have a say, at least some sort of in and, and maybe control, slight control over in, in a matter of speaking in Jesus' life, it would be the family ties. But what Jesus says here, in a shame, honor, culture, and society, in a patriarchal society that has uh, these family ties to the nth degree greater than what we have, He says, no. No, here's my mother. Here's my brother. Here is my family. And he redefines it in terms of those sitting there who believe in him, who approve of him, who are receiving him and the message that he has and their salvation. He's redefining that. This was huge. Now, for us today, we don't quite hear it with the same impact, but I do believe if we're looking at this and understanding what Jesus is saying, at the very least, there's probably a part of it that says, Jesus, this seems a little rude, if not a little offensive. And if you think that's offensive about what he has to say about his own family, look what else he says. Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And you know how we've said as we're following Jesus to the cross, we have to carry our own crosses. Look what he says right after this. Whoever does not carry their cross, it feels like death, cannot follow me, or, and, and follow me cannot be my disciple. Such a family-friendly message Jesus is giving here today, right? Like, what, how do you reconcile you know, passages like this, passages like what Jesus is saying? What, what exactly is he saying? And I think it's helpful to start by what is he not saying. Is Jesus advocating that we hate our families? Of course not. How do we know this? Well, okay, Jesus loves the Bible loves the Old Testament, upholds the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, <clears throat> you get this thing called the Ten Commandments, and what is one of those commandments? We call it the Fourth Commandment here. Honor your father and mother. Fast forward to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Okay, Jesus himself testifies to how much you should love your family when on the cross, As he is dying, one of his famous last words is he looks at his mom, he looks at his one of his best friends, John, and he says, Dear woman, here is your son. John, take care of her because I am going away. And he makes sure that his mom is going to be taken care of. The Bible makes it clear that we're to love our family. Jesus makes it clear, yes, love your family. So, so, okay, what then is he saying? And when you boil all of these things down and passages like this, when you boil it down, Here's what Jesus is saying. 
Your family is good. It's a gift from God. You should love your family. But do not make your family the ultimate thing. Don't do it. Because when you take a good thing, and when you elevate it above God and make it the ultimate thing, you take a good thing and make it into a God thing, and what we call that is an idol. And God has a, a pretty strong feeling about idols. You shall have no other gods before me. And when we do that, family has a way of getting in the way of our relationship with God and can even potentially shipwreck our faith with God, as Jesus is saying. And I think especially wherever we're at in our lives, single, married, retired, kids, no kids, whatever it is, we need to hear this. Because we are in a culture and society that is drenched in an emphasis, and I would even say an overemphasis, of the kids and the family. And there is a strong temptation to overemphasize it to the point where it becomes idolatry at the expense of God. Now, what exactly am I saying? What exactly? Let's make this concrete. What does this look like? I think of the single person. The single person who wants their own family and the single person who faces this temptation to date that person or is dating that person or maybe is even engaged to that person that they want to spend the rest of their lives with who's not a Christian, but they are so tempted to forego their faith, their values, and all of these things to be with that person. And, and yes, they love God, but the thought of calling it off because the other person is not a Christian and is not going to support their their faith, or the thought of the other person rejecting them because they don't want to go as fast, they don't want to do the things uh, that, that your values, that your Christian morals would, would keep you from doing, the thought of not being with that person is so unbearable, so painful, whose approval do you value more, theirs or God's? I think of the parents who have children. And parents who have children, they quickly find out that children don't just take over the home. But if you let them, they will completely take over your heart in a way that's not necessarily good. Parents, uh, kind of a, a simple phrase you know, I hear sometimes is, I just want my kids to be healthy and happy. That's it. If I keep my kids healthy and make them happy, that's all I need to do. Well, what happens when the goal of keeping them happy conflicts with God and conflicts with what he wants you to do and his will for you and for them? Some parents, do you allow your, your children to decide whether or not they're going to come to church? Well, you know, they wanted to sleep in. Oh, they're, just, they're just not feeling it today, so fine. I'll, I'll just let them do their own thing. Or maybe you're watching us online because you're using your family as an excuse not to come here because, well, let's face it, these messages, they're kind of more appropriate for a teen, an older audience, and my kids, they're just, 
it's just going to, you know, go over their heads a little bit, and they'll just be bored, and they want to be entertained, and, and I don't want them to just sit there and bored and not like it. Or, or maybe I've got a little baby, and that baby's going to cry, and I don't want that baby to distract a whole bunch of other people. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just stay away. And I'm not trying to say that church is the be-all and end-all of faith. If you heard me for a while, you definitely know that's not true, but it's at least a starting point. But if we're not even going to get there, or we're going to use the excuse, well, you know, the cheerleading and the, the games and the practices, you know, that always is going on when you have your services, Trinity, when you have your services, Pastor Cook. And, and, you know, my kid, they love being in those things. It makes them so happy. And I want my kids to be happy. Yeah, at what cost? How do you do that? And at the same time, uphold what God says to bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord when every step of the way you're sacrificing that for their happiness. We do our children no favors when we teach them that they are more important to us than God. We do our children absolutely no favors and a gigantic disservice when we teach them that they are the center of our lives and our world revolves around them and their happiness and we would sacrifice everything for them instead of God. And the ironic thing is that when we have this love that is totally disordered, when we put our family, our spouses, our children, whatever it is, ahead of God, not only does it affect your relationship with God, it affects your relationship with your children. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, I've come to turn a man against a father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You get what he's saying? Allegiance to me is sometimes going to mean division even within your own family. You know who felt that? Jesus like right here in Mark 3, his own family opposed to him. Like imagine, he was a human being, 100% man, 100% God, but as a 100% man, imagine how that must have felt, his brothers rejecting him, not believing in him, even his mom saying, Jesus, let's, let's knock this off. Do you met, how much might that have hurt? The pain is real, and, and some of you guys, you know that. Some of you know the pain of a son, a daughter, who's walked away. And you love them. And you get together with them. But it's like there's this unspoken tension between you. And you, you don't quite know what to say. It's maybe a distant relative, a cousin, has decided they're going to live their life a, a way that is completely contrary to God, and that could be any number of things. And they want you to love them, they want you to accept them for who they are. And you love them, but oh, that hurt. Now that, that temptation, that tension, it is so real. You know it, the pain, the hurt is so real. And Jesus' promises and comfort here is so real as well. This isn't all just a, a bad news message. But actually, if you pay attention to what Jesus says, there is 
so much comfort when you're facing that temptation, when you're in the tension, when you're dealing with the sadness and the hurt that comes from family and idolizing family. There is so much comfort because of how Jesus flips the script on family, redefines it, and gives you an entirely different perspective to think about. What do I mean? He said this, Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seating in a circle around him, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what does that mean, whoever does God's will? It's essentially in John chapter 6, there are some people who asked Jesus almost the exact same question. They said, what is the work? What is the will of God? Jesus responded, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus looks around at these people around him, hanging on to his words, believing in him, receiving in him. And you know what he says? You're my family. You're my family. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. You're my mothers, my fathers. You're my family. And when you work out the implications of what this means, the comfort is so good. Let me just give you a couple of those examples. Uh, for the single person who is maybe wanting to date, wanting to find a person, and maybe even wondering, am I ever going to find uh, a spouse for me? Am I ever going to have my own family? What Jesus is saying here is there is absolutely nothing wrong with you, and you are not missing out on a thing. You want a family? Look around Brothers and sisters, right here, God has said, you're united together. There's your family. I think of the parents who don't have kids or maybe the parents who want kids and are struggling to have kids and are wondering if they'll never have kids. And what Jesus is saying is, look around. You have a family of people and a whole bunch of little rugrats to adore and love and raise up. You have the ability to be a mentor, to be a father-like, mother-like, grandma-like figure to them. You know the phrase, it takes a village? Well, maybe we should say it takes a church family to raise up a child because that is the, that is the relationship through faith that you have with them. They are your children. They're your family. I think of the, the people who whose family has let them down. And the comfort that Jesus says here is, well, I've given you a whole new family who is here to love you, who is here to encourage you, who is here to support you and serve you and lift you up. You know, there's a phrase, blood is thicker than water. I think Jesus is saying here, baptismal waters is thicker than blood. And don't misunderstand This doesn't mean your new family isn't going to be dysfunctional. Every family is dysfunctional. And if you've ever been around a church family for any length of time, you quickly realize we're all dysfunctional. But what separates us is we are connected to a God who is fully functional and will never let you down. A God whose approval you will always have. And here's how you can do that. Here's how you can take that to the bank. 
Here's how you can know that God will never let you down. When Jesus goes to the cross, another famous set of phrases he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of you know, you know that 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 is the only time Jesus ever refers to God as God and not Father. Why? Because in that moment, he can't call God Father. Because in that moment, he is trading places with you and taking on your sin. And you know what the punishment of that is? It's not approval, it's rejection. It's refusal. It's being treated like a stranger, like an enemy. God is forsaking his own son as he is dying in our place, turning his back on his son, kicking him out of his family so that he would never kick you out of his. So that you would always be welcomed in. So that when he looks at you, he does not see the times when you sacrificed his will and approval for, for your family's approval, for, for the potential family's approval. No. Because when God looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees someone who is perfect. His face shines on you. He turns his face towards you, and he is beaming from ear to ear like a proud dad looking at his son, looking at his daughter. That is how he sees you in Christ. That is how he will always see you in Christ. That is how he loves and approves of you. And no one is going to love you as powerfully and as unconditionally as that. You know what that means? You're not missing out on anything. No matter how much your earthly family has let you down, no matter how much your church family has let you down, no matter how much you have let down the family, he is not going to let you down. And to wrap this all up, I'm going to give you one last metaphor. Talk to any parent, especially a parent who's a new parent holding a newborn. You know what one of our greatest fears is? Dropping that child. Oh, they're so fragile, they're so awesome, but like going down the stairs, you just kind of have a new comfort zone. Like, okay, where's the rail? And you talk to, I have a feeling, if we talk to the parents in here long enough and they were open and transparent enough, they'd probably tell you, yeah, I dropped my kid, dropped my son, dropped my daughter, Shh, don't tell anyone. I'll tell you about mine. It was outside our house. We have a little hill. Neighbors let us go on it. My kids are running down. I don't know what year this was, but I had our youngest on my shoulders, little guy, and as they're running down, you know, I'm just outside being a, being a dad. He's loving it up there. And they say, hey, dad, come on up. So we come up to the hill. They want to do a little race. All right, ready, set, go. So I've got him on my shoulders. And we go down the hill. And of course, you know, like, I can't let my kids beat me all the time, right? So I want to, I want to try to, to win. And I'm running down the hill. And as it tapers off, I get top heavy. You know where this is going. I try to do the epic dad move as I'm falling forward to save him. And my athletic abilities are absolutely garbage. And it falls, crash, burn. There's tears, there's crying. I dropped my kid. I felt terrible. And what's the point? Parents will drop their kids sometimes. They will let their kids down, sometimes physically, sometimes metaphorically. But it makes me think of this passage. Psalm 27, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Some of you have been dropped by your parents. 
And some of you have had your family forsake you and drop you. But not God. You want to love your family? Put God first. And he will show you how to love your family in the perfect way that he loved you. Amen.